the show. This is episode number 79 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Looper on your Making Diagrams with Straws podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vose. Oh my gosh, it's a Matthew back on the podcast. <laughs> it has been a very long time since we recorded. I have no idea what I'm doing anymore. What is a microphone? How does it work? <laughs> Which end do I talk into? <laughs> yep, and, and that's made even better by the fact that everybody else who's listening heard you last week on the Dark Crystal episode that we recorded a very, very long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're back. So this is the formal start of season two of Pop Culture Deprived. Uh, we've replaced one of the characters with a new actor because um, <laughs> they demanded too much money. Exactly. <laughs> You know, kind of a tonal shift. We're going to go in a new direction this year, maybe. Yeah, so we're doing... It's slightly different this year, actually. This is probably the time to tell everyone. Um, this year, we're going to be watching time travel science fiction movies. I know that's a surprise. I know you're all shocked. Because <laughs> we've never talked about time travel on PCD before. Yeah. <laughs> God, time travel misses with the head, doesn't it? <laughs> Fries your brain like an egg. That's the line. Okay, yeah, change for season two. Mandy remembers quotes and Matthew doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yay. I'm so glad (laughs) that we're recording again. And before we really dig into everything, um, I wanted to say that I was recently a guest on a friend's podcast. Uh, You've heard me mention the Command of Her Own podcast before. It's a a Star Trek Discovery podcast. But they, during the hiatus, they're working through other science fiction and other Star Trek shows. So I went on and talked about Voyager. Um, You all know that I like Star Trek quite a bit. But Voyager is the one that I really really like uh it was the one that i watched as it aired it was my first star trek after i really got into my first star trek series after i really got into star trek as a trekkie um so it was quite good fun to dig into the pilot with them the say pilot premiere to dig into the premiere with them <laughs> um and to talk about what we thought there's, there's jen who knows star trek and has watched it and there's kate who is new to it so we had a, a little bit of a similar conversation to the ones mandy and i do but about Star Trek. So if you want to hear, go and look up A Command of Her Own, um, and they've just done an episode on Star Trek Voyager. Um, Looper, it feels like a more up-to-date film than, than what we would normally do, which I think it is. But I, I was actually a little bit surprised to find it was 2012. Like, it films feels much more recent than that. In terms of just your memory of it, or do you mean like when you watch it, it feels like a more recent movie? Uh, a, a bit of both. It, it does not feel like it's been five, six years since I saw it. Um, okay. And and it genuinely feels like a very modern science fiction film. Okay. We'll talk We'll talk about comparisons to other science fiction films a bit later. Um, so I obviously saw this when it came out of the cinema because it's right up my street. <laughs> science fiction, action, time travel. Uh, I'll go there. Um, but Mandy, how come you've not seen Looper? The reason I've not seen this time travel movie, ironically, is time. (laughs) Because... Oh, Lord. (laughs) I I know, that's terrible, but it's true. (laughs) I mean, I've always wanted to see it. When when the trailers came out for it, I remember thinking, wow, that looks really interesting. A fan of Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I'm a fan of Bruce Willis. It was something I wanted to watch. I just never got around to it. Okay. Which is a really terrible thing to say, I think. But Mm -hmm. that means we get to do it on the show. Yay. And it's interesting going back and watching trailers because they absolutely... I mean, Sid is not in the trailers. Um, right. But the whole farmyard experience is not there unless it's a special effect. Right. Um, with, like, Bruce Willis floating in the air and stuff. It is made to seem like a, a high-tempo action film of Bruce Willis being an evil future Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Joseph Gordon-Levitt trying to kill Bruce Willis. Like, they, they only play up the action sequence. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that Ryan Johnson said um, that was entirely the studio's decision, but he was really glad they made that decision because um, selling families in an action movie is not marketable. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I I think it was a good choice, too, because it lends a, a surprising depth to the movie that you didn't expect, but it makes the movie work so much better. Mm, I agree. Okay, well, Looper is a 2012 time travel thriller that was written and directed by Ryan Johnson. It was selected to open the Toronto International Film Festival a few weeks before theatrical release on September 28th. Looper began as a three-page script that Johnson wrote at least 10 years prior for a short film. Eventually, it became the feature film we know today. 
With a $30 million budget, it opened second at the box office and ultimately earned more than $175 million worldwide. Looper was critically acclaimed and was even included on several top 10 lists for best film of 2012. Did you happen to look up what the number one movie was at the box office that weekend? Uh, I didn't. Um, I, I couldn't even make a guess. It was Hotel Transylvania. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, woof. <laughs> <laughs> Which I have not seen, and I just thought that was such an odd juxtaposition mm. between Hotel Transylvania and Looper. There's some counter-programming. I've seen most of the second one of those. Okay. It, uh, it didn't make me want to go back and watch the first. <laughs> <laughs> and don't they have, like, a new one coming out soon that's, like, oh, probably. summer vacation? Like, they're on a cruise ship or something? Ah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I saw a trailer for that. I might be making it up, but... Yeah. All right. It's the same gags they used to do with monsters, you know. Right. <laughs> yep. Okay, so I have a synopsis of this movie that isn't actually a synopsis, but it's all I could think about while I was watching this movie. Um, I think it is a weird cross between Blade Runner and Pulp Fiction, and I don't really know how to explain it other than, you know, better than that. Yeah, like Pulp Fiction, I think I see, because it's these kind of interlocking stories told asynchronously. Mm -hmm. But Blade Runner? I see Blade Runner a lot in this, a lot in the the filming, the way they set up shots. Um, the, the future okay, isn't quite so as futuristic. Yeah, it was more stylistically, right. I think. I, not plot-wise, although I guess, I mean, in both cases, you've got somebody hunting down somebody else you've got a lot of movies who do that but i think yeah. <laughs> combining that with just kind of the stylistic world and the, and the futuristic elements that's what i got out of it um which was very interesting to me because uh when ryan johnson originally wrote his short it was he was inspired by philip k dick yeah that i can see it's very much in, in that style of science fiction right yeah, because if I had to compare it, it's Terminator is what this film is. And then oh, we'll get into that in a bit. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so if you actually haven't seen it, the official synopsis of this movie is from the studio from Sony. Time travel will be invented, but it will be illegal and only available on the black market. When the mob wants to get rid of someone, they will send their target 30 years into the past where a looper, a hired gun like Joe, is waiting to mop up. Joe is getting rich and life is good until the day the mom decides to close the loop, sending back Joe's future self for assassination, which is still only part of the story. Mm. That's why I was having a really hard time writing the synopsis, which is why I didn't. And then I looked at this one and I looked at the one on IMDb and I looked at the one on Google and they're all essentially this, you know, this idea. And again, it leaves out all of Sid. And yeah. And that whole piece, which is what, drives a lot of the action in the back half of the film and is mm. what drives the ending so it's so bizarre and it like there's no agency for joe himself in that synopsis like a, a big part of the film is joe's decisions about what he's doing what he wants to do with his future what he then does in the future how did you watch this film matthew do you own this one uh no it's available on amazon prime it is not available on Amazon Prime in the United States. Huh. <laughs> but it is available to rent on Amazon in the US. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So what were your uh, expectations for the film? I expected to like it, um, mm. but I really didn't think about it much further than that. Because I've this is one that I've wanted to watch since before we started the show, and so I've just always kind of had this oh, that will be good. I want to see that. I think I'll like it. And so I've never really put more thought into it like I do for things that we watch just because of the show. Okay. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the, the cast, uh, we've obviously seen Bruce Willis in a couple of things at least now. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Jeff Daniels and director um, Ryan Johnson. Have you seen them in anything or their other work? Um, Ryan Johnson directed The Last Jedi, which is the only other thing I've seen. Although okay. apparently he did act in a bit part in Rogue One. <laughs> yeah. Because Disney loved that stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I hadn't seen anything else that Ryan Johnson had done. And this obviously is very different from The Last Jedi. 
Um, you know, obviously, we've talked about Bruce Willis ad nauseum on this podcast most recently <laughs> in, in Die Hard 3, <laughs> just a few weeks ago. Um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, I knew him from Third Rock from the Sun, 10 Things I Hate About You, 500 Days of Summer, and Inception, but we have also recently talked about him on The Dark Knight Rises. Okay, so you are very familiar with JGL. Yes. Okay. Um, And I I follow him on Twitter. I am actually um, a registered member on his hit record site where creators can go in and do stuff, which is a really cool thing that he's trying to do. He just wants to foster creativity as much as Mm. possible. He's awesome. Yeah, he is a super interesting guy. We just recently talked about Jeff Daniels on the show, so I probably don't really need to recap him. <laughs> um, Emily Blunt. I don't think we mm. talked about her on the show before, and I was surprised that I had only ever seen two other things that she's been in. Um, the Devil Wears Prada and Dan in Real Life. I think, as horrible as this going to sound, I know her most for being um, John Krasinski's wife. Okay. But you are also a John Krasinski fan, so... I am. Yeah. Very much so. And um, I I really enjoy listening to Jimmy Kimmel talk about the prank wars that he, Jimmy Kimmel and his wife get in with John Krasinski and Emily Blunt. So that's fun. Okay. <laughs> They're neighbors, so... And I think there are a couple of things we've got on the list that she's in, so I suspect we'll see her again. Okay. And I'm surprised you haven't seen Into the Woods. I have not. Like it's uh. terrible that I haven't. I I wanted to see it so badly when it came out in the theaters, and I never went. And then I think it got some kind of poor reviews, and so it just never was something that I rushed to see. And so I still okay. haven't seen it. Right. But I've also never seen the original stage version, so I don't know what I'm missing. Okay. St- stage version is better, but it is still the first half of the show is much better than the second half. Okay. And okay. then I had a question for you about the cast. Did mm-hmm. you happen to notice who played Beatrix in the diner? I didn't. That was Tracy Toms from Rent, who she was Joanne. Uh, the the the, the lawyer. Mendes also the half, yeah. Yes. I was going to yep. say lawyer, and then I doubted myself. No, nope, she was a lawyer. <laughs> um, so that was a fun little thing that I noticed. Oh, nice, her. nice, nice. Yeah. <laughs> so. You think this is like Pulp Fiction and Blade Runner, both of which we've done on the show, both of which we like to greater or lesser degrees. Similar material to this, I think it's quite like Terminator. I think arguably it is Terminator. Yeah, that was the only other movie that I could think of. Mm. Like, as a whole, that was the only movie that I could think of that was similar to this. Because, like, Blade Runner and Pulp Fiction, it's just, like, parts of them taken out and then smushed together. But just thinking about similar movies, I couldn't come up with anything besides Terminator. Um, and it's definitely similar to that. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, Lupa, did you actually enjoy it? I did. I'm yeah. very excited that I did. I, I was going to be really sad if I watched it and, and didn't enjoy it. Okay. What did you like about it? I really did enjoy the story. I liked the performances for sure. Well, particularly uh, Joe's performance as young Joe. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And, you know, the kid who played Sid was fantastic and kind of, it's no secret that I analyze time travel mechanics a little bit too much. And so I had a hard time with this movie at first, but once I got to the point where I was able to just kind of let that go and focus on what they're telling me, then I could see the story for what it was and, see you know they're telling a story about parenting they're telling a story about choices you know they're telling a story about how what we do affects those around us and i think those are all really good things that you don't expect in an action movie yeah absolutely for the film to to say to you look it does mess with your head and it's just ridiculous to talk about it like the film is saying just go with it guys guys just go with it yeah, I mean, it was super self-aware about it because they actively refused to talk about the mechanics of time travel. You know, they they would literally say, I don't want to talk about time travel right now. You know, we're not going to deal with this. Mm. And I thought being that self-aware helped me back off of trying to understand what was happening so that my brain would not fry like an egg. Even though at one point <laughs> I did type in all caps that time travel is bullshit and it makes my brain hurt. Yeah. 
Yeah, because there's a lot of this film that gets corrupted as soon as you apply any sort of logic to it. Yes. But, you know, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. We'll go with it. Um, I quite like that as a story, like when you get to the end of it and you can piece it all together, you're like, okay, this has done some very clever things. But to get to that point, the film puts a lot of faith in you as the audience to follow it through. Like, particularly the point where he falls off the ladder. And then you see kind of old Joe's history. And then you go back to bringing the two stories together. And then kind of halfway through, it just takes this jump. And it's like, oh, hey, here's Emily Blunt. We're going to follow her for a bit now. Right. (laughs) And it just... It does these jumps and then expects you to catch up with what we're doing uh, as we go through it. And I appreciate that from a film. Um, I think I've talked about Christopher Nolan doing that sort of thing before. And it's always mm-hmm. really good. Did you follow it okay? Did those bits throw you out and stop you like engaging for a while? No, I don't think so. I Mostly I kind of got through it. The one bit that confused me, and I, I don't think I, I really understood it until I read Ryan Johnson's explanation for it afterwards mostly because I let my brain forget about it because I just didn't get it. When the way he decided to show it was clearly not linearly. So Mm. the first time we see um, Joe shoot his looper, his self, Mm. you know, like everything happens the way it's supposed to. He closes his loop and things seem normal. Mm -hmm. And then the next time... He's doing it again, but he escapes. And Mm. so having them be out of order, I didn't really understand how they fit together and why they did that. And I'm like, how did this happen twice? I don't really understand. Um, And other than that, though, the rest of it did make sense. I kind of was able to piece it together. And I had forgotten that they had done that until I was reading an interview. Um, And he was explaining why he decided to do that. Hmm. And I, I can't really tell you right now why he decided to do that, but okay. it made sense when I read it. <laughs> yeah, I do, because I, I can remember even watching it the first time and then watching it again this time, like going, no, hey, this is not how time travel works. You don't just reset this. Oh, this is different. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> now I remember. It was, the, so they cool. showed it, he shot, so the, what happened was in, in the linear timeline, he shoots him himself, his older self. And then he goes on to live his life and he becomes Bruce Willis, falls in Mm. love with his, who becomes his wife. And then he realizes that he wants to save her life. And so when he, when old Bruce gets sent back, then he changes things. Yeah. And so then young Joe doesn't actually shoot him. He gets away. And right. That's not how time travel works. And it messed with my head. (laughs) (laughs) sometimes it felt like time travel was immutable in this like time was immutable and Mm. then other times it didn't and like i felt like they were mixing genres a little bit with time travel and it made my head hurt yeah because if you apply the slightest bit of logic to uh is it shay his friend seth seth that was it thank you um if they start cutting his fingers off and we see his fingers disappear, and then we see his nose disappear, and then eventually we see limbs and, and bits disappearing. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, no, but if you cut his fingers off, chances are he never goes back in time. Right. Chances are it changes exactly. his timeline at that point. Chances are that first tattoo changes it. So, uh, but you know what? Guys, it messes with your head. Don't pay any <laughs> attention to it. Just enjoy the film, the silly exactly. little action film that we're putting on for you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I think Ryan addressed this a lot, in, um, and sometimes he even did use the word magic or magical as, as there being that kind of element. But but the thing that, that I read that made the most sense to me, um, he said, even though it's a time travel movie, the pleasure of it doesn't come from the mass of time travel. It's not a film like Primer, for instance, where the big part of the enjoyment is kind of working out all of the intricacies of it. For Looper, I very much wanted it to be a more character-based movie that is more about how these characters dealt with the situation time travel has brought about. So the biggest challenge was figuring out how to not spend the whole movie explaining the rules and figure out how to put it out there in a way that made sense on some intuitive level for the audience, then get past it and deal with the real meat of the story. And I think he succeeded in that. I mean, we can sit here and debate the intricacies of time travel and how none of it makes sense. But at the end of the day, the story does make sense if you don't think logically about it. Mm. 
you know, you just kind of have this general feeling, okay, I see what they're doing. I understand. Yeah. Lo- logic just ruins the story a little bit at that point. So let's have fun. Um, I think I want to talk character a little bit. Okay. Because um, we have several characters, one of whom is the same character twice. Um, this is probably a good point to say that our friends uh, Jen and Kate over on A Command of Her Own podcast, they actually watched Looper a, a number of weeks ago now, and they had a really interesting conversation about it, but particularly about women in the film. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a very good conversation to have there. I think you and I aren't going to have that conversation because I would say, if you want to hear it done well, Jen and Kate do it really well because I think Beatrix is the only woman whose name I know from this film. Um, all the women are indeed mothers or prostitutes or waitresses <laughs> or caregivers of some sort. It's a bit that they, they do not get treated well in this film. Okay. I do know Sarah's name. Which one was Sarah? It was Sarah Emily Blunt. Yeah. Okay. But I only know that because uh, Sid, in the beginning, Sid refused to call her mom. He called oh, her Oh, he Sarah. does, isn't he? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But like, you know, one of the main parts of this film is Bruce Willis's wife. Who I'm not sure even gets a name. Um, I don't think she does either. And, and I, I'd like to think if this film was made now, you'd have more female parts in it. But also, most people, even including Joe, do not come out of this film well. So you'd only end up with complaints of, well, if you make Seth a woman, like, okay, so that's the person they butcher. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it would have been really interesting, though, if they had had some loopers who were women. mm they didn't, but none of the characters who surrounded Jeff Daniels' character were women. No. And, and maybe this is a, a future where, you know, the Me Too movement doesn't happen or something happens to turn certainly the world that we see into a, a, an even more misogynistic experience. Mm-hmm. But we don't get that. It is just <laughs> they're either waitresses or mothers or prostitutes. Right. What am I so I recommend going listening to Jen and Kate. Um, after you listen to us, stick around for us talking about characters. Joseph Gordon-Levitt doing his Bruce Willis impression. It was freaking fantastic. It's pretty good, right? Yeah. <laughs> so they clearly put a lot of prosthetics on him. Um, he has this much heavier brow. I think his neck's been made bigger. His face is generally a bit more round. Um, mm-hmm. they've darkened his eyebrows, all this kind of thing. He's got a, a, a larger nose. Because Joseph Gordon-Levitt, you think of as a very sort of size zero, five foot tall kind of guy. <laughs> he is a very small person, but he's also, when I think of him, I think of happiness and joy. Because yeah. I've never seen any of the darker stuff that he's done other than The Dark Knight Rises. You know, right. I think of, honestly, I think of his character from 10 Things I Hate About You. <laughs> You know, and yeah. and you you know you get that God, that that one quote where he's like we're screwed, and the other guy's like no be positive, and he's like we're screwed, you know, and he's got this like happy bubbly face yeah. all the time, and that aspect of him was gone in this, mm. like, and it it's not just the prosthetics, it's the way he learned how to move his face, the way he learned how to say his words, yeah. to mimic Bruce Willis. And it was fantastic. Like, I was watching this movie, and <laughs> I was like, I swear to God, that's not Joseph Gordon-Levitt. But then it is. But it's not. It's freaky. And then <laughs> was like, how did they do that to his face? I don't understand. Mm. Seriously, how did they do that to his face? And it it's more than just changing his nose. You know, it's yeah. something intrinsic within the actor himself who could figure out how to do that. Um, and I think I read that even even Bruce Willis during the diner scene, he was unnerved by it because he felt like he was sitting across <laughs> from his younger self. Yeah. I mean, it's easy to do method acting when you have the person you're pretending to be. Opposite right. Um, uh, uh, there, there was a comment about uh, Bruce Willis recorded some of the monologues for mm-hmm. Joseph Gordon-Levitt to study, but he was re-watching Pulp Fiction and Unbreakable and things like that. Because actually, that's the most interesting bit about it. He's not channeling young Bruce Willis. He's doing Bruce Willis now. The Bruce Willis who who has come on since Pulp Fiction and Unbreakable and Sin City, this very mm-hmm. um, oh, very dry, very stoic sort, doesn't talk right. very much. Whereas if you look at uh, like 
you know, you remember Die Hard and Moonlighting type of Bruce Willis, who is very quippy and actually quite engaged and a bit more emotional about everything. That's not what Joseph Gordon-Levitt's doing here. No. <laughs> and there's just a few times when he gives little lines back to people when, when he's talking to Jeff uh, Daniels and he says the thing about, you know, your grandfather. And it's like, oh, that that is exactly Bruce Willis. Mm-hmm. Very well done. Conversely, though, I think Bruce Willis's character was the least interesting in this movie. Yeah, so actually Jen sent us a question to say. Jen said, I'm curious how y'all enjoyed Bruce Willis' performance. I know you enjoyed him in Die Hard. Um, and it's interesting, I'd never considered his performance. I think I'm always so engrossed by Joseph Gordon-Levitt and like trying to spot what he's doing. And and even in some ways, I'm watching, I'm watching Bruce Willis to go, have they made his face longer? Have they, have they just shot... They, like, I want there to have been a little bit going the other way for him to be trying to be a bit more Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but obviously Bruce Willis is the biggest star, so right. I kind of get it. But I don't think I've ever watched it to consider Bruce Willis, and I think I'd agree with you. Like, it's actually a bit cardboard-like. It is. He has very few speaking lines. I mean, the most interesting part was the diner scene. Which I think it was supposed to be, because that's when they're actually face-to-face yeah. having a conversation with each other. The rest of it, we're just watching him try to kill kids. You <laughs> yeah. know, and he's not, he's very singularly focused, and there's not any depth there. It's, I have to do this one thing. And even though that one thing is theoretically driven by love, the character hasn't really changed. She's still just as selfish and self-centered as young Joe is at this point mm. in time. And so there's not, it doesn't appear as if the character has grown other than in age. Yeah. And I think you saying young Joe is selfish and self-centered is absolutely right because he's not going back in time to kill the Rainmaker to save his wife because he's the reason she died. Because he could have just given her up by saying, look, when you see this woman, never... The, the thing that Joseph Gordon-Levitt says to him, he says, you know, show me her face and I will not pursue that woman when I see her. Right. He's not giving her up because he got her killed. He still wants the things she does for him, the caregiving, getting him right. over his, his addictions. He just wants to stop someone else killing her. Yes. So even his whole thing is very, very selfish. But I, I feel, feel like they have to have that in there because if it's just... He's going back because he wants to kill the Rainmaker because the Rainmaker's evil and destroying the world. Or or the Rainmaker did directly kill his wife. It, it is 100% Terminator at that point. Like, at least this has a little bit different from <laughs> okay. it. Like, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And I think him being a bit wooden and not having much dialogue, he doesn't go far enough with it in that direction. Arnold Schwarzenegger was mesmerizing as the Terminator because he was playing it so robotic. And you watch it, you're like, right. okay, this is really interesting to see him playing a non-human who looks human but because Bruce Willis is stuck in this in between he either can't be too emotional or he can't be too robotic because otherwise we're all going yeah Arnold did it better sorry (laughs) (laughs) yeah um part of me wonders though if around 2012 is when Bruce Willis had kind of hit he was at the top of his game. You know, he was very super well sought out. And so maybe they just needed, they just needed his name and his face. He didn't have to do anything Mm. to market the movie. Yeah. Cause like I say, I'd never actually considered how he was because he is just Bruce Willis comes in and does his thing. Right. Mm. And the, the, the character that matters is Joe in quote unquote present day. Yeah. And, yeah, going back to the first thing, Joseph Gordon-Levitt sells it entirely. Oh, absolutely. He's so good at what he does in this. But that's gushing. And we're not <laughs> here to do that. Let, you mentioned the killing of kids there. Oh, yeah. This movie went there. Yeah. How did you find the killing of children? Oh, it was tough. Like, I... I mean, when the first one happens, we don't know enough about old Joe to know whether he this is the kind of thing that he would do. And so, of course, my brain is like, no, he's not going to do that. Nobody would actually kill a child that age. And then he did it. And I'm legitimately sitting on my couch with my hands over my mouth because I'm horrified and shocked Mm. that they just did that. But then it gets even, even worse, almost maybe not even worse. That's not the thing to say. But 
when you realize that the character has chosen to kill a kid because he wants to change the his future which would mean if he did he would disappear mm. and then he doesn't disappear so in that moment he absolutely 100 percent knows he just killed an innocent child yeah i mean the child's going to be innocent anyway but you know what i mean in mm. context and you kind of see that emotion play out with the first one you know he is actually devastated and and granted we don't know if that devastation is because it didn't work or if it's because he's realizing that was the wrong kid. It could mm. go either way. But they did show it, and I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and they didn't even do the movie thing of setting us up to see, like, okay, that kid's a little asshole, though, so it's deserved. Which is right. the way, like, film normally does it. Like, if someone's going to be on the wrong end of something, they at least show us that person is not nice. But no, this is a, what are they supposed to be, five, six? Which is very very small to be a latchkey kid as well. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. It's hard. It, it, it was tough. I, I think they did it well for what they were trying to do, mm-hmm. but it's just not something you see very often. Yeah. It's just blatant killing of children. But that then does lead us to Sid. And the kid who played Sid was Pierce Gannon? Gagnon? Gannon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who is sensational in this. He is really good. He sells um, the the two sides of it, the sort of monstrous side when he's using his um, his power, and then also his childish smallness, which is a lot to do in the way they frame him and have him looking up. But mm-hmm. God, when he looks up covered in blood, and when he's hiding yeah. in the in the um, cellar door thing, mm-hmm. it's really really good. You, you you do go, oh, oh, he is just a child, right? Absolutely. It it was such an odd juxtaposition of his childlikeness and the strength of his ability mm. and his lack of control over it. And, and you could see he never intended to actually hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not actually true. He intended to hurt the person who was threatening his mother. Yeah. But, like, his mom has a safe room essentially to protect herself from this literally. child. Yeah. Yeah, literally. Yeah, literally <laughs> safe room. <laughs> and you know he does not mean to hurt her. He loves her. Mm. And he's just devastated afterwards that he realizes that he lost control, you know, and he's just crying and he says I'm sorry and he's hugging her and and then you get him utterly utterly destroying the man who is hurting his mother or threatening to hurt her. I mean, he's covered in blood. There's blood that's splattered out of the window that's covered the side of the house from yeah. the inside. And almost like rain. <laughs> <laughs> so, when I was watching it, he reminded me so much. There's an old episode of The Twilight Zone called It's a Good Life. Mm. I don't know if you've seen that one if you're familiar with it. I don't think so. But it's about um, someone who the narrator refers to as a monster. Like a monster has come to this town and has fundamentally changed the town. And you learn that this monster is a child named Billy who's not much older than Sid. And he basically has the ability to do whatever he wants. He can make people disappear. You know, he didn't like electricity, so he turned off electricity for the whole town. They weren't allowed to say bad things or he would hurt them. You know, but he still always had this smile on his face, this, like, very, like, childish maliciousness. Right. And I could see that in Sid minus the maliciousness. Okay. Very strange. They even kind of physically resembled each other a little bit. Oh, really? It was, yeah. Or <laughs> yeah. that may just be my memory being faulty, but it, it felt to me as if they were very, very similar. Okay. And I, I don't think it was intentional because I didn't see it mentioned anywhere where they talked about Sid. Hmm. But... It, it's definitely a striking coincidence, I think. Yeah. Yeah, the kid is, is really good, particularly because his early introductions are him talking in a very adult way about remembering his, his mom, in inverted mm-hmm. commas, um, and, and developing the frog signal thing. Mm-hmm. So they set him up, his initial proper introduction as being quite adult, but then it gets into, oh no, he is actually also a small boy. Right. Who is learning to do his times table. Right. I actually kind of thought whenever our introduction to him when he was talking and it was so very adult, my instinct was to think, oh, they're setting it up for us to see him be bad. 
Mm. You know, if he's if he's so adult like, then he's probably got this streak of, of malice in him that he's doing it intentionally and on purpose. But that wasn't the case at all. It was just intended to show us that he's a remarkable little boy in yeah. every way. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't think I've seen that episode of The Twilight Zone, uh, but I think I have seen the Simpsons Treehouse of Terror that does the same story. Okay. Which I, I think is a reference to that, about Bart terrorizing the town and uh, stuff like that. I think he turns Homer into a jack-in-the-box, maybe. A, an actual jack-in-the-box, not a... Not a yeah, um, no, that's a direct call back to that episode of The Twilight Zone. Ah, okay. Um, so, Sid, we really like? Yes. Abe, Jeff Daniels. He's is, an interesting sort. <laughs> yeah. He's the one that, coming out of the film, I always go, like, I want his story. I really want his story. Like, why did he go back? What did he know? Why does he keep this dumb kid around him and not do anything yeah. to the dumb kid? Like, there's so many things in there of, like, oh, this is interesting, but they never get answered, which is probably one of the reasons why it's uh, a better film maybe than it deserves to be. Because, uh, I don't know, a more mainstream, you know, high-profile film would have answered those questions because we don't like those, you know, unanswered things at the end of a movie. We want to satisfy every member of the audience. Right. I I think you're right. I would like to see more of his story, but I like that we didn't in this movie because it wasn't his story that we were telling. Yeah, true. Um, I, I think my favorite part of Abe was when he called Joe in and when he's looking for Seth and, you know, he's talking to Joe and he's like, we know that you took all this money and everything. And then he's like, I don't know why you would do this because, you know, I found you as a as a boy. And I they had you, you know, you know this kid is like an animal. But you, you looked at me, your hair stuck to half your face, just one eye looking at me. I could see. Like seeing it happen on the TV, the bad version of your life, like a vision. I could see how you'd turn bad. So I changed it. I cleaned you up and put a gun in your hand. And I'm sitting here thinking, so you cleaned him up and made his life better by turning him into a murderer. Mm. And in his mind, that that is exactly what he did. He's yeah. like turning him into a murderer was giving this kid a better life, and I think that's fascinating. Mm. Yeah, it shows his twisted view of the world, but also it gives us hints about what the world is like for those without any power. As we see, you know, people gunned down in the street and scavenging, and so vagrants. I think is the word they use all the way through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is clearly an overpopulated and under-resourced world at this point. Yeah, I I found myself curious about the politics of the world because in in Young Joe's present, I mean the world is basically lawless. I mean if you can just walk down the street and gun somebody down mm. with no fear of repercussion. So what happened between then and thirty years in the future where time travel exists, but ha- is apparently so bad it's been outlawed? Like what happened? to make the government decide that's the thing that we need to speak on. Is it is the film trying to imply that someone used time travel and made the world worse and that's where we, why we end up with lawlessness? No. Because that's not how time travel works. <laughs> is it though? <laughs> I, I in, in this universe it very well could be. I mean, that's how we have the Luber program. Is that mm. somebody went back in time to create it so that yeah. the people in the future could do what they wanted to do? Mm. Um, I hadn't considered that, but but maybe that's a possibility. They don't really talk about this is a near dystopian future. You know, it's not super far off, but they don't mm. really talk about how they got there. They don't talk about the before, and the only thing we really know about the after is that time travel is outlawed. Yeah. And I find it interesting that they use the word outlawed instead of illegal because we don't really talk about terms of yeah, being outlawed. Outlaw mm. And outlaw is like somebody from the Wild West, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> Robin Hood. <laughs> exactly. Um, so that, that's interesting, too. And it just it opens up questions about the world that I want answers to. And I, I think that's a, a mark of good storytelling because I want more. It's not that I want these questions answered because the story doesn't make sense without them. It's just I want more in this universe. And and that's kind of 
one of the things I quite like about the film because there are a lot of stories in this film, a lot of stories that you could use as the core thing. Someone coming back in time to kill the child, the development of the TKs, the Looper program in and of itself. But these are all part of one whole story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I quite like that there is that much world building going on. I mean, you know how much I love world building and a big universe in, in you know, any sort of science fiction. Right. They do a lot very quickly in this. And I think in some ways it's because it ignores, it almost ignores the science fiction stuff. Like, okay, we've got TKs, but they can kind of float a lighter. That's about it. Or, right. you know, we've got hover cars, but they're a bit kind of grappy. Um, <laughs> and, and then let's move on. We've got a drug that you inject into your eye, but it's just a drug. Okay, deal with it. We right. don't we don't do... Um, I'm trying to think of another example. Minority Report, maybe. Um, which is a, a film that I can only compare this to in a number of le- ways. But Minority Report tries to explain a lot of its science fiction rather than just saying it's a thing. This is how it works. Let's let's move on and carry on. And mm-hmm. I, quite, I think I like it in this in the same way I liked it in Blade Runner. They are replicants. We can't tell if they're human or not. There's no like identifying because they've got fake internal organs or robotic in- uh, insides or something. They're just fake people. Deal with it and move on. <laughs> okay. Does that make any sense? Does that me waffling too long? It does. No, no, it does. Absolutely. <laughs> but fake people just made me giggle. That's fake all. Fake people. <laughs> False personages. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. We'll, we'll take it. Um, yeah. And I, I think the other, the other sci-fi aspect of this that we don't really get is you expect in a... In a movie that's set in an unknown date in the future, where time travel has been invented or will very soon be invented, you expect there to be a lot of like vastly superior technology. Mm. And we get some of that, but I think like I, I made a note of, okay, so we're living in a world where we have hovercraft sprinklers for farms, yet we still have rundown farmhouses. Mm. You know, and, and that's kind of how everything was for every slightly high tech thing we had, like the motorcycle that was a hover bike. Mm. We also had junk cars broken down on every street. And, yeah. and so it, it's it's very different than what you would expect from a quote unquote time travel movie, because you expect all of this futuristic technology. You know, we didn't get any like holograms or like crazy trifold pocket computers like they have in Westworld, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We didn't get any of that stuff, which is an interesting choice. And I also think it makes it slightly more relatable because it looks – that version of the future looks more like our version of now. It's just slightly different. Yeah. He is He is still driving an MX-5 that he's not updated and everyone else's car now has solar panels and extra pipes on it because mm-hmm. presumably gasoline's no longer a thing. And Right. Like, and that's believable because we still drive classic cars now. Right, exactly. And maybe an MX-5 could become a classic car. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't do it without laughing. It is a great car. It's just very small and has a massive stereotype around it in the UK. <laughs> is it is it a Miata over there it's called? Uh, Yeah. Okay. I, I don't, they don't even make those anymore, do they? No, yeah. I, I remember them being really popular when I was in high school. Okay. I think I did have actually kind of... Just one teeny tiny complaint about this mm. movie and we've kind of been gushing about it since we started talking about it <laughs> but i was shocked at how terrible some of the cgi was in this movie mm. that final fight scene like in the i guess not the fight scene itself but leading up to it um in the cornfield especially when seth shows up and seth and joe are fighting mm. Oh my gosh, it was so bad. Like it was not seamless at all. It was very clear they were in front of a green screen and it yeah. it looked very amateur and you don't expect that from a movie that came out in 2012. Like if it had come out in like 1998 maybe. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but but it was pretty terrible. I mean, which I guess kind of explains I had spent most of the movie thinking that the changes they made to Joe's face was CGI. But now that I understand that those were all practical effects made with prostheses, mm-hmm. then that kind of helps me understand a little bit better. Maybe the budget just wasn't high enough if they well, were relying on practical effects. I don't know. It's just, it was bad. Yeah, I 
I agree with you. Yeah, there are points that stand out. You're like, oh, that's not quite as sharp as it should be. But there's points that almost explain it to me where I go, the, the film is wearing its low budget on its sleeve at times. Um, the bit where Joe picks up the like superpowered future machine gun thing and is mowing guys down but we can't see them because they're in another room. It reminds right. me of those like Star Trek, you know, Star Wars type things where they're having a fight and everyone's watching the ships move on a screen and we're just watching the people watching a screen. It's got that right. sort of like, we can't show you, but it's happening, right? Use your imagination. And there's so many bits in this where, I'm, where I go, yeah, that's a budget thing. That's a budget thing. Just stuff of, uh, they're, they're doing some very clever work with the low budget of the film. Because, I mean, this is a $30 million uh, budget yeah. movie yeah again comparing it to my minority report minority report had a budget of 105 million dollars oh wow and okay. cake came out 10 years before this now minority report you can see it it looks gorgeous it's a beautiful film it's well shot it's got a great cast it's you know it's all there on screen for you but then for this to be so much lower and 10 years later it does a lot with actually not that much that's true and uh, they did some really spectacular things around Sid and his abilities. I mean, yeah, the, the CGI true. they did there mm. was pretty fantastic. Yeah. Um, and so I guess, you know, directorially, that makes sense. You know, put spend the money where it's going to make the, have the most effect, make yeah. the most impact. Um, but it, it was just so noticeable. Um, I think Joseph was walking through the room when I said something about it, and he just turned around and looked at it, and he goes, oh, wow. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I completely agree with you. But but the bits were Sid with, like, Bruce Willis hanging in the air with all the hay around him. Like, yeah. It, that's really good. Yeah. And, and in fact, I, I meant to mention, the, the guy who comes to threaten Sarah, that's our Terminator connection, because that is the guy who plays Cromarty, the Terminator, in the Terminator Sarah Connor Chronicles. Oh, okay. Yeah. I have not seen that. Oh, it's not bad. Okay. The second season is much better than the first, but by that point it was too late. They'd renewed it because <laughs> they didn't want another Firefly in their hands. Right. <laughs> yep. Okay. So we also had a couple of comments that I wanted to throw in here uh, from people on Twitter. Because um, I did ask about the prosthetics and what people thought of uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's performance for uh, as young Bruce Willis, in inverted commas. Um, our friend Lauren at Six Legged Knit said, I did find the prosthetics really distracting, but probably only because I'm familiar with how JGL is supposed to look. It probably wouldn't have bothered me with an actor whose face I knew less well. And that, that is an absolutely solid point. Absolutely. Yeah. I found myself similarly distracted for the first part of the movie mm. because I was watching him and, and like my brain would get so caught up in, okay, this is Joe... In this movie, it's this character, but then, like, something would happen, and I would all of a sudden see Joseph Gordon-Levitt for just a second, yeah. and then he was gone again. And so every time that happened, my brain stuttered a little bit, um, at least for the first half, until I kind of got adjusted to it. Mm -hmm. So I totally understand that feeling. Yeah. And, and especially the bit where it starts going through Joe's history, his future... And and you have that one scene where I think half the scene is shot with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and then it becomes Bruce Willis. He like turns his head and suddenly he's the other one. I, I suspect they've actually merged two shots to do that. But it, it's really well played to go like, okay, I can now see the, the actors switched, but they've taken us to that point. Like his hair's thinned out a bit. He He's a bit more heavy set by this point. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and my friend uh, Dom at Grok said, there were prosthetics. <laughs> which I thought he might be trolling me, but his follow-up was, I assumed it was all, C all CGI. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was CGI at first, um, just because we live in a world right now where everything is CGI. So totally valid. Okay. Totally valid. But look at what they did to uh, Henry Cavill's lip for Justice League. So... <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay. Do you have any favorite stuff that we've not gushed over yet? Um, I think uh, we haven't talked about the use of music at all in, mm, in this. Cool. And I think, honestly, I don't know the names of any of the music. I think it was all just scored. But the way they used it, it was so frenetic at times that it like physically made me feel anxious while I was watching what was on the screen. Right. Because it just heightened that sense of this is, you know, something is happening and we don't know what it is, but something is coming. Hmm. Um, and I, I enjoyed that. 
Um, I I also really liked, um, you know, we talk a lot about how I, I'm in this place when I watch movies where I'm always looking for the twist. Right. Always trying to figure out what's going to happen. And in this movie, I did figure out really early on that Sid was a powerful TK and that he was the Rainmaker. But that's not the twist. You know, the, I couldn't figure out the end. I had no idea how this movie was going to end. I, I knew that it couldn't end well, especially for old Joe. But I didn't know what they were going to do. I didn't mm. know if they were going to change it. And like Joe and Sarah were going to live happily ever after raising Sid together. Yeah. I didn't know if they were all going to die, if it was futile to try and change it. Like, I could not figure out where the story was going. And that made it interesting and kept me wanting to see what was going to happen. Yeah. And that happens so infrequently just because Hollywood is so formulaic that it was really refreshing. Mm. Yeah, it's really cleverly done because once they introduce them, you start setting up this sort of romance thing. Right. But they don't go there with it. And, and it it is the one point that he is selfless. That very, yes. very end point. And we've said the whole thing is about him being selfish. So it, it is a very nice thing to build on top of everything else we've seen. Mm-hmm. Mm. And and I, I do love building up to that. All the small details they give us to kind of let you know that, yes, he is definitely the rainmaker. So... Uh, there are there are a lot of big details that give it to you, but just things like he, he says there are stories that he has a synthetic jaw, and of course at the very end he gets shot in the jaw. Mm-hmm. And when Sarah's cleaning up Joe earlier, she says it's very easy for things to get infected. It's like oh, okay, if she's killed at this point, she doesn't clean up the jaw. He ends up with a synthetic jaw, and he saw his right. mother shot, and he becomes the rainmaker, and he wants to take out the loopers. Right. It's very clever. Just lots of uh, comments and and sly things all the way through. Um, and I think there, there's just kind of one, I mean, some of the dialogue in this was really, really good. Mm. Um, but there, there was a moment where Bruce Willis calls Joseph Gordon-Levitt, you stupid little shit. And I just started laughing and I was like, hi, pot, meat kettle, I'm back too. <laughs> you know, like, really? Are you going to do that? <laughs> and then, um, I didn't mention this quote earlier, um, but I did talk about how they were refusing to talk about time travel mechanics Mm -hmm. and so in that diner scene bruce willis says i don't want to talk about time travel shit because if we start talking about it then we're going to be here all day talking about it making diagrams with straws yeah and that was one of the best lines i think just because it's so self-aware but it's yeah really funny (laughs) it's so true yeah Mm. um it it made me laugh and you don't expect to laugh when you're watching this kind of movie it was great There, there is a um uh, a visual infographic that someone did of all the timelines through this and how they kind of fit together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you don't need it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I found one. Um, I'm sure there's more than one. Mm. I found one where they were using it to show a, a plot point failure. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, but you you kind of, you know, like we've talked about, you just can't think about the time travel too hard or does the whole thing falls apart. Because in theory, <laughs> if... If Bruce Willis killing Sarah is what turns Sid into the Rainmaker, that doesn't make sense because the Rainmaker already existed in the timeline where that didn't happen. Mm. Yep, I'd agree. But, (laughs) yes, when you think about it logically, yes, that's true. But it makes perfect sense when you're watching it in that moment. And I think even in my doc, I shouted in all caps, oh, my God, Joe turned Sid into the Rainmaker. And it made perfect sense. I was like, okay, I get it. I know why this is happening. Um, And so time travel is something that you have to feel emotionally and not think about rationally. Mm. Yeah, if we are in a world where time travel can't actually change things, then yes, it makes absolute sense. But this is also telling us that they can change things because he's going back to try to change it. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I even tried to explain it as, oh, this must be a multiverse then. But then it can't be or else Seth wouldn't have been losing fingers. Mm. Yep. Fries your brain like an egg. <laughs> mm. I do love that diner scene because there's lots of that from particularly from old uh, Joe where he uh-huh. calls him boy and things like yes. that. But you also get Joseph Gordon-Levitt with like, why don't you just die? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think Bruce Willis at one point says, you shut your child mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
and and it's good that the film is very much treating them like two characters, and it works well for that. It's not sort yeah. of doing a winky nod thing. Well, I mean, because really they are two separate characters. Because at this point, young Joe has not made the choices yet that make him old Joe, mm. and so they're not the same. Yeah, as we are shown at the end, young Joe has the ability to change it. Mm. I think it's all those. Um, the small moments all the way through about changing things and making decisions. I think that that's what really speaks to me and, and it is sort of my favourite thing about the aesthetic of this film um, from a... Do I mean aesthetic? I don't mean aesthetic. But aesthetic in terms of like what it's giving you, I don't know what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how does podcast? <laughs> what I'm recording? <laughs> no. Just the idea that he, at the very end, he makes this big decision and that is what will allow Sid to grow up as a good person and potentially a world leader to go on and be, you know, the new Gandhi type thing. Mm -hmm. But we've got that, the discussion from Abe where he says, you know, I saw that you were going to have a bad future and I put a gun in your hand and I made you a better person for it or I gave you power or something that was yours. Right. And it's this idea of making a change now that does something in the future. Um, there was a thing going around Twitter and Tumblr ages ago about, you know, people always worry about going into the past and making changes, but no one worries about making changes in the present. And it's exactly yes. this thing. It's, you know, it, it, she thinks if she can be there for Sid and raise him well and speak softly to him and show that she cares, he will be a good person. It's not kill this one person, step on this butterfly type changes. It's just a, a thing here, a thing there. Helping Joseph Gordon-Levitt get over his addiction get over the withdrawal symptoms and clean up admittedly the bullet wound she puts in him. <laughs> and he is then a better person who makes a decision to be selfless. Right. Which arguably is what Bruce Willis is doing, but he's doing it in, in a sort of vengeance mode. Mm -hmm. And it's nice. I, I like that as a, a message to come from the film. Yeah. I, I do think that the, the film was telling a story and, and sending a message and I think it succeeded in mm, that. Definitely. Um, one other thing that, that I wanted to mention that I really, really liked um, was, in the end, Sid finally calls Sarah Mama. Aww. And I got warm fuzzies <laughs> all over. Like, I didn't quite tear up, but I think I got a little bit choked up, you know? Because it, it, it was such a thing, because he was so sure that she wasn't his mm. mother. And then he he realizes that she is, and, and he wants his mom. And it was just, it was nice. I liked it. <laughs> that That's the sort of thing made for you, isn't it? So Yes, yeah. it absolutely is. <laughs> um, I think this is the best kind of action movie, because it has a little bit of everything in it. Yeah. Yeah, it's very well done. But let's talk about that voiceover for a second. So when we did Blade Runner, the, the voiceover was very contentious. Of whether it should have been used or mm -hmm. not used, mm. do you do you feel any of that conflict here? Was was the voiceover warranted? Was it was it done well? Uh, would you rather have not had it? So the voiceover at the beginning explaining the world, or the voiceover at the end, him talking about oh I saw what would happen and I decided to change it. Well, I meant just voiceover in general, but if you want to split them into, let's split them into. Okay, um, I think it's all necessary. Um, I, th I think my my one complaint with this film is it's inelegant at times in in giving you information and and the voiceover is part of that because certainly at the beginning it has a lot of setup work to do in explaining what is going on because it would be very hard to show you that so I get it right you know an another film a, a film like Terminator gives it to you in text this gives it to you in voiceover with some on screen action okay. I feel the voiceover, particularly at the end, if you take it out, the scenes presented on screen give you everything you need. The the sort of slightly hazy image of him going off in a train with blood coming from his mouth looking angry at the world, and then Joseph Gordon-Levitt turning a gun on himself, you sort of get what's going on there. But it is also fairly poetically written. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's bad that, that, that certainly that's included, but it's also not really necessary. But I think okay. other times that the film is giving you information. I mean, we, we've basically talked about the two out of the three main scenes of Abe meeting with Joe, Joe meeting with Joe, and then Joe and Sarah later on. There's these three key scenes that give you lots of information about the world, about Joe's future, and about Sid. And that is how it tells you everything that's going on and then sets up all the action. 
mm-hmm. and it's just it is a slight sense of exposition dump uh, in those moments that again another film whether it's a budget thing whether it's because it was written by someone who's also the director would have been done a little bit more elegantly throughout scenes or with more uh, interplay and dialogue than just one person talking at someone else for a very long time much like this podcast (laughs) (laughs) okay I I think all of that's fair Mm. I think yeah what do you think I think I liked the voiceover um, initially because the introduction voiceover introduces you to the world very quickly Mm. and lets you know this is what we're going to talk about yeah and while they did reiterate that a couple of times throughout the movie when they probably didn't need to, um, I think going into the movie, it was better for me to have that information up front. And right. so I liked it. And I think I liked the, the last one mostly because, like you said, it was written very poetically. Then I saw it. I saw a mom who would die for her son. kill for his wife a boy angry and alone laid out in front of him the bad path I saw it and the path was a circle round and round The, the impact that that last sentence that he said was, so I changed it. And then he shoots himself and the movie's basically over at yeah. that point. I thought, I didn't see it coming. I, I feel like maybe I should have. And if I watched it again, I would probably see more things that would let me believe that Joe was growing to become that person. So it surprised me. And so it, it was almost impactful enough to the point of goosebumps. Almost. And okay. and that's why I think I liked it. Good. Um, but if I think about it too much, then I think about it, I think it's weird because he's dead and he's telling us about a thing that happened in the past. Yeah. Which is weird. Yeah. But vo- it's also time travel, so. Yeah, voiceovers <laughs> are hard like that, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, it, it worked for me. It did. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it is a, a good way to end the film and have him talking and, I, and thinking about it I can see particularly appealing to you because it's that kind of Doctor Who speech you know I saw it and I saw what was happening so I changed it yeah it's very I took really action is. and I you know I, I wanted to make the world a better place mm-hmm. so I killed myself <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> you got problems there Joe. well yeah okay <laughs> yeah I I feel like this movie had a lot of elements in it that were made specifically to delight me mm-hmm. And mixing it in with an action movie just made it that much better. Because I do really like action movies, too. So, yeah. Yeah. That was a good one. Okay. All right. Well, is there anything else that we need to discuss about Looper? Um, I have a question for you. You, All right. You you mentioned earlier that this is a film about someone uh, with powers that they can't control doing harm they don't want to do. And it is in some ways an X-Men origin story, but it's very similar to another X-Men origin story. So I want you to tell me (laughs) which is better, Looper or Frozen? That's almost impossible to answer if you're asking me to compare (laughs) which movie is better than the other because they're both really good. Which is the Um, better X-Men origin? uh, My answer is probably going to surprise you. I have to go with Frozen only because Looper shows us bits and pieces of the Rainmaker's origin story, but it's none of it is from Sid's perspective. And so we're not actually getting his story there. Okay, that's fair. Um, Frozen, we do get Elsa's perspective. And so that's why I'm going to go with that one being a better origin story. Plus singing. Plus singing. Yeah, it's got that song. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. It's it's a shame they never did the X Men Origin films they were planning to do, because this this would be a really good example of, hey, don't actually show us, you know, Cyclops raging against his parents and stuff. Show us people like fighting to help him. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
Well, if you would like to weigh in on which movie is a better X-Men origin story, you can use the hashtag PC Deprived on Twitter. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Eloquent Gushing. You can email us at podcast at eloquentgushing.com, or you can leave us a voice message at speakpipe.com slash eloquentgushing. You can find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Bose. We are completely funded by our lovely listeners through Patreon. So anything you can give gives access to exclusive content and outtakes and extra shows. Um, and it helps to support the network and develop new shows. If you want to find out more, please go to patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. And don't forget to check out our homepage where you can find our other shows and subscribe to the weekly newsletter. It's eloquentgushing.com. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll talk about Star Trek, the motion picture with Andy from the Women at Warp podcast. Until next time, I'm Andy Kay. And I'm from the future. You should go to China. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, please visit eloquentgushing.com.